Good morning. My name is Ryan Burns, and uh, I'm actually not one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church. I am the director of operations, which is a fancy way of saying that I do stuff. Um, I make sure every Sunday that all of this happens, uh, as well as during the week, I oversee things like our finances and uh, creating policies and procedures and dealing with logistics and human resources and systems and structures and uh, pie charts and bar graphs and, and pretty much everything that's awesome. Um, it's all the stuff that everybody was fighting for and I won the battle. So that's what I get to do every week. And it really is an honor and a joy to, to be able to serve Redemption Hill in that way. Uh, but this morning, I have the distinct joy and pleasure to open God's word with you. And so uh, as we do that, we're here in Matthew chapter six, verse five. Uh, and it's only appropriate that uh, as we prayed for Robert, that we pray for ourselves this morning. So let's, let's pray again. Father, uh, grab our attention. Grab a hold of our, our, our hearts this morning. Uh, much going on in our lives that, that can distract us and our minds are, are prone to wander. Um, Lord, help us to look into your word and to hear your son Jesus as he speaks. Um, for your glory, we pray these things. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. Hear the words of our Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you have need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. So we're about halfway through our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're about six weeks into it, more, more or less, and we've got about six weeks, more or less, uh, to go. And what we've seen is that in the beginning of chapter five, Jesus has ascended the hill, sat down, taken the position of a teacher, and his, his followers have come to him, and they've sat down, and he's begun to teach them. And what he teaches is, is in many ways very countercultural. Uh, the first thing he does is in chapter 5, verses 2 through 11, he, he begins to explain what blessing really looks like for his followers. What blessing really looks like. And we see that it's quite different than what we might actually call blessing. Because Jesus says that those are blessed who are poor in spirit. Those who mourn, those who meek, those who are merciful, 
and those who were persecuted for Jesus' sake. Not exactly things that would maybe make our top 10 list of blessing. But what Jesus does is he goes on in chapter 5, verses 17 17 through 20, um, I mean through 12 through 16, is to talk about how he wants these blessed people, his followers, he wants to actually put them on display before a watching world. And he wants to put them on display not to make much of them, not to make much of us or that we would make much of ourselves, but he wants to put his blessed people on display for a watching world so that as it says in verse 15 or in verse 16 that they that our light may shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our father who is in heaven Jesus Jesus's followers are to be put on display for the glory of God Jesus then goes on in chapter 5, 17 through 20 to affirm God's law, but in affirming God's law, he actually goes to show that it's not just a set of external rules that are to be checked off of a list, but that indeed God's law goes much deeper. It goes after our hearts. And we've started using the term throughout this series of gospel cardiology. And cardiology just, in in the natural sense, is the study of defects in the heart. And, And what we've seen is that Jesus is exposing throughout this sermon not just the not the defects in the physical mechanism that that pumps blood throughout your body, but that inner part of who you are. The part of you that's more than just your external actions, but who you are in secret, who you are when no one's looking, who you are before your father. And Jesus is exposing those defects. And he begins really working this this idea of gospel cardiology in chapters 5, 21 through 48, where he begins to look at our moral righteousness. And that is the, the, the right standing that we think that we have before God based upon our obedience to a set of rules. And Jesus goes and and he begins to show us uh, time and time again as you go back and study that surface obedience to a set of rules simply isn't enough. That God is actually looking at our hearts. That he's looking at what motivates us, what drives us. And we begin to see sin the way that God sees it. And it exposes our great need and it shows us how far short we fall of the life that Jesus has called us to. And then should we think somehow that we've squeaked by, we have to come to the part in chapter five, verse 48, where Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A perfection that is not just external in its obedience, but internal. And we simply we simply fall short. And I, I appreciated a conversation that I had this week with, with Tim Gleason where he reminded me, um, and I believe that he got it from the, the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that what we see is that this life, this life that Jesus calls his followers to needs supernatural intervention. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, what it does is it, need, it, it, it exposes our need to cry out for a Savior on the Mount. And when we hear the sometimes crushing words of Jesus, 
when we face the reality of how far short we actually fall of the law of our Lord Jesus. It must be to Him that we look to make us right before God because the sermon that Jesus preached is actually the life that Jesus lived. But instead of receiving the reward that such a perfect life deserved, Jesus instead chooses to die the death that we deserve for our unrighteous lives lived. And so it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 um, that for our sakes he made him, he made Jesus, for our sakes he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And now through faith in Jesus' death, through faith and really believing that he lived the life that you're supposed to live, and died the death that you deserve and placing your faith and your hope and your trust in that, when that happens, we can say with confidence what it says in Colossians 1.13. And that is that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and that he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Sermon on the Mount should make us see our desperate need for the Savior on the Mount. But I want to say that this does not lessen the call that Jesus puts forward to us. It in no way lessens what he's calling us to as his followers. But what has changed is that we're now actually free to follow him. When we place our faith and hope and trust in what Jesus has done, we are now actually free to follow him. The scriptures say that before, before we come to him in faith, that we are actually slaves to sin. But when we come to him in faith, we become slaves to righteousness. And while we will imperfectly follow our Lord, I mean, if, if, if you've been over here the past couple weeks, <laughs> let me just say, I have come to see how imperfectly I follow the Lord as I see what he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. But thankfully, we studied 1 John a couple months back, and we read in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, what are some of the most encouraging verses to my soul. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will follow him imperfectly. But what used to crush us, when we hear the words of Jesus, what used to crush us should now feel different as his followers. As those who have been, what the scripture would say, those who have been born again, those who have been reborn, our taste buds should begin to change. And through faith in Jesus, we now hear his words, and instead of them crushing us, there should be something within us as his followers that wells up that says, I actually want that. I actually want to do what Jesus is calling me to. I actually want to love my neighbor as myself. I actually want to not be angry with my brother and my heart not just check off a bunch of rules to follow, but we actually begin to live that blessed life that he talks about in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
When you become a follower of Jesus, your taste buds change. Then we enter chapter six, where Jesus turns from examining our moral righteousness or those kind of external rules that we think we just need to check off in order to be right with God, and he begins to deal with our religious righteousness, how we act because of where we believe our standing is before God. And we began to look last week at our giving. And we saw last week that as followers of Jesus, we're not to give to make much of ourselves, or to be made much of us, but because Jesus has given us access to God through his perfect, righteous, holy life, that because he has so graciously and abundantly, above and beyond what we could ever think or ask or imagine given to us, we are free to give to others of our time and our talents and our treasures. And this week, Jesus turns his attention to our prayer life And prayer, just very simply, is talking to God. Just as simple as we can make it, it's talking to God. And we see throughout Scripture from first to last that prayer is is always a part of what God's people are doing. We see from first to last throughout the Scriptures, we see prayers for deliverance, prayers of worship, prayers of thanks, prayers for our leaders, prayers for our elders, prayers for our churches, prayers for our brothers and sisters around the globe that are persecuted, prayers for people that we care about, prayers for our family, and yes, prayers for ourselves. You can't go far in God's word without seeing that God's followers are prayerful people. And I just want to remind us too that here as we enter this section in chapter 6, verse 5, that really this whole kind of section that, that we're dealing with is all coming under this umbrella of what Jesus said in the first verse of chapter 6, of beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Jesus is still after our motivations and our affections and where they're placed. Is our motive in prayer simply to be seen as good religious people, or do we truly, truly treasure our Heavenly Father? So we pick up in in verse five of chapter six, and Jesus says, and when you pray, and just like last week when he started off with, with, and when you give, he's operating on the assumption. He's operating on the assumption that as his people, as Jesus' followers, that we pray. And so before we begin to ask, how do we pray? I think it's fair enough to ask ourselves, do we pray? Do we pray? As those who have gathered here, who've placed our love and faith and hope and trust in Jesus, do we pray? Because I believe that, that prayer begins to really show where your dependence lies. Does your dependence really lie in God? And, and I'll be honest, it was, it was probably eight months, a year ago, that, that I really just began to sense in my own life a, just a general lack of, of prayerfulness. I mean, certainly I, I would pray, you know, we, as a family every night before the kids to get to, get to go to bed, we gather together as a family and we pray. You know, when we gather around the meal table together, we pray. And, and, you know, when, when really terrible things happen, we pray. But I just began to realize this general sense of, of 
of just prayerlessness in my own life. And, and, and what I began to realize is that I simply think that I can just get it all done. I really had placed my dependence upon myself. I mean, I'm, I'm the director of operations, all right? So, like, by nature, I'm a get-it-done guy. Like, there's a problem. Yo, I'll solve it. Sorry. That's not in the notes. That just, that just came right now. Lord, help me. But I, I get things done. That's my personality. That's my giftings. And I very much rely and am dependent upon myself. And I just realized how little I was dependent upon my father. And so, not only that, but I realized how little I care about things. Because if we're honest, we pray about the things that are dear to us, that we hold most dear. Like, I pray for my kids. That's something that doesn't lack. I'm always gonna do that because I love them and I care for them, I pray for my family. Um, but I realized that there were so many things in my life that, that, that my lack of prayer just exposed a general lack of care. Even, even in my job, I mean, so many mundane things. I mean, like, you know, who's, who's signing up to do bank reconciliations? Like, yeehaw, that's, that's a good time. I'll tell you, bank reconciliations. But even in that moment, like it's, it's just this mundane task of, of my job and my life and, and I come to it and it's so easy to just, eh, yeah, let's do this. But if God has truly given me his ear through his son, why wouldn't I bring things like that to him? Why wouldn't I come to him and say, God, finances of, of Redemption Hill are important to you. You've called us to be good stewards. You've called us to use these things for the furtherance of your kingdom and the glory of your name. And God, I, I, and to pray for those who so faithfully give and so sacrificially give and those in our congregation who don't have jobs and are, and are in a hurting place. Why wouldn't I bring those before the Lord? And for me, it was just a, it was simply the recognition of, of my dependence on myself and really exposing my heart. And so in, in, in the process of, of repenting, of, of, of coming before God to, to let him deal with my heart, I've just increasingly found myself just praying. And as we'll see this morning, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of prayer. But just stop and pray when the opportunity presents itself. Just stop and pray. It really, it really, really is just that simple. To simply stop and acknowledge that your heavenly Father is listening, that he's there, and that he cares. And as we'll see later, it doesn't have to be fancy, but simply acknowledge where your dependence lies. And one of my, honestly, one of my heartfelt greatest hopes, um, among other things, for Redemption Hill is that we would be a praying people. It is, it is my heart's desire that prayer would just be something that permeates us, that marks us as a people, that not to make much of ourselves, but that we actually believe, that we actually believe that God is so great 
and that our dependence rests so fully in him that we would come to him in prayer continually. So we see what Jesus says. He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Who are you praying to? Who are you praying to? That's what Jesus is getting at. Or I think uh, uh, another way that we could phrase that question is who do you love? Who do you love? Because it says of the hypocrites, or, or last week as we talked about the, the term hypocrite there, carries uh, the connotation of an actor, one who puts on a mask and, and parades around trying to look as if they're someone else. It says that the, act, the, that the hypocrites, that the actors love, they love, love, love to pray where they can be seen. They love the attention that it brings them, the attention of men, the people looking at them and thinking, oh, check out that guy. There's a holy guy. Did you hear how long he prayed? They love the attention that it brings them. But do we love, do we truly love that we have the attention of the Father through what Jesus has done? Do you really treasure it? Do you really understand? And, 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 and even my mind, it, it, it's so hard to, to grab hold of it. Do you really understand that through what Jesus has done, you have access to the God who created all things by the word of his power? So how are we like the hypocrites? How are we like these actors? As I was thinking about it, you know, Perhaps there's other ways that might come to your mind, but, but two kind of came to my mind as I was thinking. And, and the first one is, uh, is, is when we preach pray. Anybody heard the preach praying? It, it, uh, it's when you're actually just talking to the person that you're praying for, but you're kind of masking it as if you're talking to God. So it might sound something, you know, it, it might sound something like, you know, Lord, just, just bless my brother Bobby. He's going through a tough time. Just help him to deal with the laziness in his heart that he might have the strength to, to really follow you and, and serve the church and, and do all these things that he knows in his heart that he needs to do. You're not praying to God. You're trying to tell Bobby that he's lazy. Like, Bobby, stop being lazy. We, we pray at people instead of to our Heavenly Father. I think the other way that we do it and uh, this is probably for those of us who have, who have been uh, in the church for a while, it's prayer requests. Um, we, we can talk and talk and talk and talk about our prayer requests and not actually even stop and pray. It's the weirdest thing. And I think, and, and I'm not against, you know, prayer, hey, you know, we pray for me and, and asking people to pray for you. I'm not, hear, hear me, I'm not saying that, but um, do we ever actually stop and pray? Or are we just wanting to talk to people? The hypocrites just wanted their voice out there to be heard. And I'm not saying that talking to people is wrong. I think, I think the scriptures are clear that you know, when, one of the mem- when one of the members of the body suffers, we all suffer. 
and that we're called to bear one another's burdens, and that we're called to be there. And, and, and when, you need a, when you need somebody to listen to you, just, hey, can I just unload for a second? And we should be there to care for one another and bear one another's burdens. But let's not guise it in the, sense, in, in the mask of prayer. But let's just begin to be in the habit of praying. And if, if you're in a community, um, which I know a lot of you are, and if, if you're not in a community, um, stop by the new here table on the way out and, and find out where some of them meet. We meet throughout the city at various times throughout the week to just live our lives together, to engage God's word and to, to engage the mission of God in our communities. I encourage you, there's a table out there, new here. Um, stop by there and find out about a community that you can get engaged in. But in your communities, like, like for me, what I realized, and, and I have the honor of, of leading a community here in the north side of town, and what I realized is that we'd, we'd spend so much time talking, and, and, and we have a bunch of kids at ours, and so at 7 p.m., they all, just nuclear explosion happens, so we have to end at 7 p.m. on the dot. And so we'd have these wonderful discussions about what God is doing in our hearts and our lives as we engage his word, and then we'd be, you know, what can we pray about, and, you know, 10, 15 minutes goes by and the clock is ticking and, you know, we hear the chaos going on upstairs and it's like, oh, okay, okay, everybody good? God, please just bless everything we talked about in Jesus' name, amen. Go get the kids. That was our community and what, what, what we've started to do is just simply pray. I mean, it's just that simple. As we've gathered together and as we're talking and as we're sharing what God's doing in our life and something comes up and, you know, somebody's experiencing maybe some conviction or an area that God's challenging them or there's a struggle that they're facing in their work and it comes up as we're just, hey man, that's, man, do you realize that we have an audience with the Father right now? Like, let's keep talking about it, but before we do, could, could you just pray for them real quick? We don't have to have like a 45-minute prayer session where everybody, you know, ha- Let's just pray for him real quick. Let's bring him before the Father. If you're in a community, perhaps that would be helpful. And two, just praying and when things come up in conversation. Again, we, we get so used to just talking about things. And I mean, I was, the other night, uh, my wife and I were talking about our kids and, and just how they're growing up and how proud of them we are and how they're so cute and just realizing some of the different stages that they're getting into in life. And it's like, man, they're growing up, you know, they're, and there was this moment where it was like, we could, we could talk for hours about it. But I just reached across the table and I said, let's just pray for our kids right now. And we just simply, simple prayer, a couple of minutes, and then we just went right back to talking about them. But it's acknowledging who our dependence lies on. It's about acknowledging who our affections are towards, who our hope is in, our hope for our families, our hope for the, our friends, our hope for those in our communities. It's in God, it's not, it's not in ourselves. Just get in the habit of just praying. Who are you praying to? Who do you love? And then Jesus goes after how are we to pray? And he says in verse six, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Let's just just get this out there that this can't only be taken literally or else I've already messed it up twice this morning because I'm in a giant gym and I'm not in a closet. Although some Sundays this is hot as a closet, but it is not a closet. So it can't only be taken literally. And 
There is absolutely a place and a priority that we need to place on private prayer in our lives. And even over this week, as I've, as I've been reading the text and praying, I've realized that this is probably one of the areas that, that I need most growth in, to actually set aside time where I'm just going to be with the Father in a place where it's just me and Him. And we see through our Lord Jesus that He not only calls us to that, but actually if you, if you look at the life of Jesus throughout the Gospels, His pattern was that of constantly going out by Himself to be with the Father. He prayed before others, but constantly there was this pattern of his life of going for private prayer. And so I think he is indeed actually calling us as followers to pray in private. But also, we will pray before people. We will simply pray before people. And so the question is, can you pray to your father in secret even when others are around? Can you pray to your father in secret even when others are around. And for me, it's really an issue of awareness. And it's, it's fixing my attention upon the one with whom I'm speaking. And others may be present, others may be in the room, might be 350 of your closest friends might be around, but can you actually come to your father and acknowledge that you're coming before him and not before the people in front of you? For me, it's an issue of an awareness. And he mentions here again reward. And he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And, and last week, we kind of had some time to actually go into detail about how we can properly interpret the reward in, in these, these sections that we're in right now. And, and we don't have time this morning to go in detail. Um, if, if it's something that you're really questioning, trying to understand how this reward stuff works out, go to redemptionhill.com find the sermon archives and listen to last week, I, I think it will be helpful. Um, but I think suffice it to say this week that reward can be rightly interpreted, at least in part, and that your heavenly Father hears you. The reward is that your heavenly Father hears you, that you have his ear. And in verse um, seven and eight, in verse 7, Jesus reminds us that we do, in fact, have the ear of the Father. And he says that, we're, that when we pray, we're not to heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. They think because of their many words that the Father will hear them. The Father will hear us because he has reconciled us to himself through his Son on the cross. We have his ears. Some of your translations might say something like, because of their vain babbling. And the point is this, that you have an audience with the God who created all things. And that unthoughtful words, or simply the mere vocalization of some phrases, aren't worthy of the one with whom you speak. You have the audience of God, empty words and just the repetition of some phrases are simply not worthy of the one with whom you speak. And so how do we do this? How are we like the Gentiles in their vain babbling? Well, you know, honestly for me, the easy one to pick out is mealtime prayers. 
I mean, if, if you're like me, you just got one in your pocket that you just pull out and it's the go-to mealtime prayer, you know, uh, God bless this food to the nourishment of my body and my body to thy service. In Jesus' name, amen. Or if you got kids, maybe you're teaching them uh, the one that my mom taught me when I was a kid. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands, we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. Or if you have a Catholic background, it might sound something like, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. And, and let me just say, every single one of those prayers are awesome. I mean, the, if you sit and think about what just came out of your mouth, bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, they're gifts, this food is a gift that we received, how do we receive it? From your bounty, from, from you who, who owns all things and made all things, through Christ our Lord, we acknowledge that you are Lord of this meal and our time together. What an amazing prayer. God is great, God is good. Oh, those prayers are awesome, but for me, I, I found that, that, that that was the first place where I was able to say that's where I am just like them just vain babbling, just, we gotta, we're gonna pray before we eat, we're gonna acknowledge God, yes, you're here, thanks, okay, amen. Pass the okra. But these empty words are not worthy of the God that we have access to, that we are able to pray to. And so for me, just personally, I mean, I've been, uh, even over the past week, just, just being so much more aware of who I'm speaking to when I pray specifically at mealtimes, because that's it for me. Maybe it's something different for you. I mean, maybe, maybe it's the Lord's Prayer. I mean, some of you have, have grown up in church and you've been around church and you have said the Lord's Prayer like a bajillion times. You know, you can, you can say with your eyes closed, hands tied behind your back, dribbling a basketball, you, you've got it. You've got the words down. Can you actually pray it, acknowledging who you are coming before? Because just mere saying of phrases, just the mere emptiness of words is not worthy of whose attention we have. And I'll say too that the Gentiles probably sounded really good. They probably used fancy words, technical jargon, and when you heard them, that dude can pray. Like he totally won the prayer meeting. That was nice. It probably sounded good. It probably made you feel a little inferior, like, man, you know, I wish I could pray like that. Wish I could be fancy. You have the ear of your Father. Jesus rather wants us to come to God with sincerity and simplicity. And he says that we can come to God with sincerity and simplicity because the reason that we can come with sincerity and simplicity is because your Father knows what you have need before you ask Him. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, and so you can come with sincerity and simplicity. Notice, it does not say your Father will give you what you need before you ask. He might. That's not what it says. He says He knows. He knows what you have before you ask. And I want to take a, 
a rabbit trail, which will possibly be the shortest rabbit trail ever taken in the pulpit of Redemption Hill. Because I feel like this, this is important to say, possibly there, there might just be one of you that needs to hear this. Here we go, down the rabbit trail. If your understanding of God's sovereignty leads you away from prayer, then your understanding of his sovereignty is no longer biblical. It's suffice it to say that the Bible is absolutely covered from front to back with prayer and that our Lord Jesus, the very Son of God, not only tells us to pray, but himself can be consistently seen in prayer. It is because God is sovereign that we pray. Rabbit trail, we're back on, rabbit trail over. Jesus says that because God is your father and because he knows your needs, you can come before him in sincerity and simplicity. And then Jesus outlines what this simple prayer can look like for us. And he says, pray like this. Notice that he doesn't necessarily say pray this. He doesn't say repeat after me. He simply says, you can pray like this. Let me make it simple for you. You can, you can do it like this. And then he gives us an example of an extremely short prayer. It's four sentences. Of those four sentences, two are about God and two are about us. It's simple. No fancy words, no technical jargon. It's just a simple prayer coming before your Father who knows what you have need of. That's not to say that long prayers are bad. Jesus himself, if you wanna go read in John 17, Jesus prayed a little bit of a lengthy prayer. He prayed for you in that prayer. Did you know that? John 17, he prayed for you. Long prayers are okay, but Jesus said, look, take a deep breath. You have an audience with the Father. Come before him in prayer. And God is first, and we see our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Our affections are turned towards the Father. The love of who he is and his holiness and his greatness and his goodness is turned to him. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We address the issue of our desire. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Not my will, not my kingdom. God, yours. You're the one I love. You're the one I treasure. You're the one who is perfect and holy and just. Not me. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then we see that we can bring our request before God. And we see the very simplicity of the ask. Give us this day our daily bread. Nothing audacious, it's not self-serving, presumptuous prayer. It's simple prayer acknowledging where your dependence lies. God, man, I, I, I need you to provide for me. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others. There's in our prayer a recognition of our, our state before God. That as we saw earlier, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, that, that sin will be something that in, until, we are, until we see him face to face, that we will struggle with, that we will battle with. And so we, we have the opportunity to come before him to confess our sins and to ask for forgiveness and to recognize our need for repentance. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The request for his divine protection and his guidance along the path of life. 
Jesus says that it's that simple. Come to your Father in secret and ask. Come to your Father in secret and ask. And now here Jesus does us no favors by wrapping up his prayer with an amen or a in my name. Instead, he drops this statement about forgiveness. And if uh, I know as, as I read this, it's like, whoa, we just shifted gears really hard right then. Like we were talking about prayer and we're praying all of a sudden, like forgiveness. And, and, and it just, it's kind of jolting. Like why didn't he say amen? Like that, that, it feels very incomplete. But Jesus says it's simple. It's not a form, it's not vain words. You don't just have to, you don't have to tack an amen on there. But he says this statement about forgiveness and, and the reason that I'll put forward today is that, that, that in this prayer that he gave as, as an example to his followers, there's really, really only two things that would have been kind of new concepts to them in prayer. His followers would have been familiar with prayer in general. They would have been familiar with, with, with the idea of praying about the holiness of God's name and that his name would be made much of and renowned. They would be familiar with uh, praying for his kingdom to come and his will being done on earth as in heaven. Prayer for daily bread would be something that they're familiar with, as well as the act of asking for forgiveness and the leading us not to temptation and delivering us from evil. All of these would have been common uh, prayer vocabulary or ideas for those in, in Jesus's audience that day. But the two things that would have stood out to them as, as unique the first would have been our Father. To actually pray to God as Father would have been a somewhat new concept to him. Surely it's in the Old Testament uh, in several places, but rarely in relation to prayer. But Jesus has, has spent the entire Beatitudes referring to God as their Father. And so it at least would have been in their mind. But this section where he says, as we, as, as we also have forgiven our debtors, would have jumped out and would have been the part of the prayer that he would have gotten some funny looks at. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have clicked with them. And so, essentially what Jesus is doing is he sees the question marks popping up, the blank looks like, wait, as we forgive others? What, explain that. And so Jesus immediately at the end of the prayer begins to, he, he's answering the question that's on their mind as they're hearing his words. He wants to help them understand why he added that part. And the reality is that in asking for the forgiveness of our sins, the wrongs that we have done before God and to God, when we, when we properly understand our sins, the depths of our sins and how truly offensive they are to God. When we really grab hold of that, when we really understand it, and we see that, that in spite of that, God offered his son so that we might be forgiven. When we really see that, when we really understand that, when we see that he offers us forgiveness at the cost of his son dying on the cross on behalf of us, and instead of the wrath that we deserve, he actually gives us his spirit by which we can call him father. 
when we really get it, when we ask for forgiveness, we see that there is absolutely no way that we can withhold it from others. When you truly see the seriousness of your sin against God and the forgiveness that he truly offers to you, you simply cannot withhold forgiveness. The very fact that we can approach God in simple prayer as children is that he has forgiven us in Christ. Forgiveness is the fountainhead of prayer. Oh, that we would be a praying church. Oh, that we would be a people of prayer whose dependence fully rests on God. That we would come before him with simplicity and sincerity and lay our lives before him as a father who knows what we have need of. That we would be a praying church. It's, it's our custom most weeks as the sermon ends that we would take one or two minutes. The things that have, that have resounded in your ears and in your hearts and the things that have come to your mind, the, the, the questions, the challenges, the convictions, that we would just take a couple minutes to, to reflect on those. And, and I think honestly, the appropriate response this morning is to just come before your Father in simplicity and just in prayer. And so we're gonna do that, we're gonna take about two minutes and, and I wanna encourage you to, to come before your Father in prayer but, but if you're here this morning and, 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 and maybe you can't say that God is your Father. Maybe you haven't come to the place where, where, where you have accepted that, that your sin has actually separated you from God And you're, and you're still wrestling with who Jesus is and what he has done and what is the deal with this man who lived this perfect life and died this death and then got up out of the grave? What do I do with that? If you have your bulletin on the back of it, there's some prayers back there. And hopefully you've paid enough attention this morning to know that these are not magical incantations. This is just something to get you headed in the right direction to think about that you might be able to pray and actually bring them before God and maybe today's the day where you say, that's it. Jesus, I, I give it all to you. I, I will live this life imperfectly, but I need the Father to hear my prayers. It's only through his son, Jesus. Now, as you do that, there's gonna be some people that'll stand up and they're gonna go grab the communion elements. And in about two minutes, we'll get back together and we're gonna celebrate the Lord's table together. Let's do that now.